0: The jobs are here, the jobs are here, and you're in the right place, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, I'm Matt Kopenheffer, right here next to me is David Hanson, David Robinson Cano, Mm -hmm. finally signed a contract, is getting $240 million, if you had that kind of money coming your way, what would be the first thing that you'd do?
1: Man, I don't know, probably wouldn't go play for the Mariners, first of all.
0: It's a nice city, but the Mariners are just not good. Now they will be. If you pay $240 million for a baseball player, you're automatically good, right? I would hire a good lawyer.
1: (laughs) That's what I would do. There's going to be tons of people claiming certain things to try to get some of that
0: money. So first thing, lawyer. certain things. I don't think we want to go any further (laughs) than that. Let's go to the headlines. First headline of the day. This is from Reuters. November US jobs report, not exactly the most creative headline, but gets right to the point. Unemployment rate, David, down from 7.3% to 7%, creeping ever closer to the Fed's target. 203,000 jobs added during the month of, what month are we even in? November, month of November, Mm -hmm. 203,000 jobs added. Uh, September, October combined payrolls also revised up by (coughs) 8,000 jobs. This is fantastic everything's fixed.
1: Let's... Is that my cue to say like the traditional, oh, now I'm going to be pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. and everything, everything you hear about the jobs report is, well, unemployment's lower, we added so many jobs. And there's that one guy who's always like, well, if we look at labor participation, it's way down. So I don't pay too much attention to the jobs numbers. It's really hard to get a good message in terms of one month telling us, okay, what does it all look like? It's very hard to say. And is the picture worse than what it was before the financial crisis? Yeah, it's still worse, but we're getting better. We're moving in the right direction. So I'm not going to be one of those pessimists that says, oh, well, a lot of people are leaving the, work,
0: the workforce. So I'm going to be a little bit optimistic about it. Uh, the average work and a- average hourly earnings were both also up. During the past 12 months, the federal government has cut 92,000 jobs. I, I just, I can't help doing it. I always have to point out The U.S. federal government continuing to do its part to Mm -hmm. hold back the economic recovery. Yay, us. There you go. Let's go on to the second headline.
1: Second headline, not from today, but this is from fool.com. Jordan Wathan wrote the article, the best REITs for 2014. 2013, not a very good year for the REITs. And the two REITs that he calls out that he particularly likes going forward, realty income and healthcare REIT. Realty income known as the the monthly dividend company. uh, they have a new CEO in place, a relatively new CEO. It's only the third CEO in the company's 40-year history. So some change over there in management. But uh, the business seems to be in, in good shape that Jordan talks about. Very low financing costs. They focus on single-tenant retail buildings. They're not in these huge shopping malls or, or, or big strip malls. They like to focus on the standalone, kind of like a fast-food type restaurant. They have long-term leases, 98% occupancy rate. That's one of Jordan's favorites there for 2014. Did you have any thoughts on Either of these
0: reads—they're both—they're both solid companies. I, I think, uh, from my perspective, this is a sector that that could see a reaction from when the Fed starts to do whatever it's going to do if interest rates start to rise again. And again, I, I should point out that as we've said before, the Fed tapering or the Fed even uh, p- pulling off any of its quantitative easing hasn't has actually led to the opposite right. of what people expected in the past. But That said, if if rates start to rise, this is a sector that we could see some some action on from the perspective both that if people can get higher yields on fixed income Mm -hmm. and other safe investments, that hurts companies that that pay dividends, potentially hurts hurts their stocks at least. Uh, And then also from a financing cost perspective. So I think uh, investors who are looking at REITs right now, it's even more important to be looking at the management, to be looking at the strategy, how it's operated, as opposed to looking at just the current numbers.
1: Yeah. and, And Jordan points that out Obviously, with Realty, you got a very low financing cost and a good management team there. Healthcare REITs similar. They serve a very niche market that the healthcare industry, doctors, uh, elderly care company. facilities. Very effective. Uh, so both maybe a safer alternative than some of the high-flying mortgage REITs that, that we see out there. Um, maybe, we, maybe you'll see so, some price depreciation over the next couple months if there's some volatility there. But I think if you're a long-term holder, these can still be good.
0: Well, and, and even if prices get hurt, that, if, if, you, if you like the strategy, like the company, mm-hmm. that can be an opportunity to add it at, at a better price. Yes, sir. All right, third headline, and this is an exciting one. Always love hearing about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, market-beating skills revealed. They're revealed. They're revealing what did skills. What does it mean by cutting research there? That means like a cutting edge? Actually, I, I don't, I don't that know. That headline doesn't... That's why, that's why I didn't read that part. <laughs> okay. uh, it, could, it could be the re, uh, research firm named Cutting. So his skills um, were revealed. What, were,
1: what What are these skills that he has?
0: So what they what they highlighted... Actually, the research was done by uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research. So it must have been cutting-edge research. I think Very that's what it is. But Bloomberg's known for uh, kind of uh, head-bender, <laughs> a mind-bender type of headlines. Anyway, uh, National Bureau of Economic Research uh, did this study... It looked at the sharp ratio of of uh, Buffett's investments going back to 1976 versus the rest of the stock market, Buffett's sharp ratio. That's kind of a measure of, for lack of a better, for an easy way to put mm-hmm. it, outperformance, uh, measuring the alpha that an that investor is getting. Based on how much risk. The portfolio is right. So it adjusts, it adjusts for adjusts for risk and, and looks at the the gains adjusted mm-hmm. for that risk. So you want so, a higher ratio. Exactly. Buffett's was 0.76 since nineteen seventy six. Uh, the rest of the stock markets was 0.36. and of the group of mutual funds that have been uh, in in business over that time period as well, their median uh, sharp ratio was 0.37. three seven. I'm sorry. So it was 0.36 for the overall market. Point mm-hmm. three. Uh, Sorry, 0.39. I've said 0.36 a few times now. 0.39 for the overall market, 0.37 for the median mutual fund manager, and then 0.76 for Buffett. Uh, What the uh, NBER uh, study pointed out was that Buffett was willing to take on borrowing to finance investment, then pick stocks that have low volatility, are cheap with low price-to-book ratios, and are high quality, meaning that they are profitable and have high payouts. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's pretty much classic Buffett in most ways we think of except for the is willing to take on borrowing Right, uh, and, and a lot of that is really part and parcel of him investing through Berkshire Hathaway where it's a lot of the insurance operations where you're essentially borrowing money and then using that to lever your investments. And I
1: think that where they talk to buying safe, secure companies that are, that are growing profits if you have the float leveraging that I think you look to his recent buy of ExxonMobil, that kind of fits the bill. Maybe this isn't going to be a huge high flyer, but if it can produce steady cash flow, profits, and you can get that float leveraging a little bit, It doesn't need to be a huge outperformer for them to do very well.
0: And another interesting thing to point out that they noted from the research that uh, differentiates Buffett from—if we think about a lot of the sort of famous investors, the one who's who are in the news a lot, like Carl Icahn or uh, uh, Bill Ackman—that that that the the performance of the stock picks, the not wholly owned companies that uh, Buffett has. Mm -hmm. Uh, invested in. Uh, the performance there was better than with the wholly owned companies, suggesting that it's more about Buffett uh, picking the right stocks, uh, being a good stock picker, as opposed to being able to exert pressure on management in order to get the things that he wants. Yep. Uh, I like this quote just to finish off. This is from Andrea Frazzini uh, and David Kalber of AQR Capital. Buffett's performance appears not to be luck, but an expression that value and quality investing can be implemented. I think we can all agree with that here at the Fool. Yes. The focus for the day is your article.
1: You wrote an article for the, uh, the stress test column that comes out every Thursday. You can follow it on Twitter at TMF Stress Test, I believe. And the title of the article was One Bank You've Never Heard of and How It Put Your Favorite Banks to Shame. So we always talk on this show about Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, US Bank Corp. These are kind of the gold standard of US banks. They did very well coming out of the crisis, even before the crisis but you point to a bank that did better than these from a stock perspective and maybe from a business perspective. What is this bank? Don't keep us in suspense.
0: <laughs> this is uh, Svenska Handelsbanken. It's one Say of that the again? Svenska <laughs> Handelsbanken. This is one of the largest, and I'm probably saying that wrong anyway, even though I'm trying my best to say mm-hmm. it correctly. Uh, this is one of the largest banks in in Sweden, and it uh, it's a public company, so you, uh, investors can actually invest in Handelsbanken. So... Um, Why why did it outperform? So what we're talking about here, it's a combination of of things, I think. One of the big ones is culture and strategy, that this is a bank that didn't overextend itself, didn't uh, chase after growth and yield during the good times so that when the bad times came around, uh, it was prepared for that. But then also part of it, too, and and this is um, not the biggest part of it, but I would be uh, remiss to to not point this out, price-tangible-book-value, before the financial crisis for Handelsbanken, was around two times uh, tangible book value. Whereas if we look at Wells Fargo, it was trading at a multiple between three and four times. So basically, it, we look at the business performance, both of those businesses performed relatively well. Handelsbanken made a little bit better than Wells Fargo, but uh, we've seen the valuation hold up better at right. Banking because it had a lower beginning.
1: And, and kind of the way you stumbled upon this bank, I guess, is uh, through a book. From, by by Niels Kroner. I think I'm saying that right. And we have the, the picture there for those li- watching. It's a, a blueprint for better banking and it kind of details this bank. And in, I
0: realize the paperback was so expensive. Yeah, very expensive. I got it on Kindle.
1: There you go. Uh, and he he has seven deadly sins of imprudent banking. And we don't need to go through all seven here. But was there one or two that you found most important or one that you particularly liked?
0: I think all seven are, are enlightening for bank investors in particular. But number seven in particular, continuity of past to future is key. Because I think if you fall into that trap, if a bank falls into that trap, it can encourage it uh, even more to, to fall into the trap of the other six deadly sins of banking. So if you believe that past experience and current experience is going to extend on out indefinitely into the future, then, then other deadly sins like asset liability mismatches or uh, over investing in emerging markets, those can seem like a great idea because you say, oh, well, it looks really great today, so tomorrow it'll look really great as well.
1: Okay. So if we talk about kind of the culture and just the management team not taking excessive risks. Does culture and risk management kind of trump what valuation looks like today? What are, What is the return on assets today? Is that potentially more important to the long-term investor?
0: Well, one of the things that I pointed out at the end of the article is I highlighted two quotes from prior to the financial crisis. And and one was from Citigroup's Chuck Prince. I think it's a quote that everybody has heard Mm -hmm. at this point. So maybe it's a little bit cliche, but Chuck Prince was essentially saying that uh, the music was still playing. Everybody's up dancing. Everybody's having a good time in the banking sector and the the economy. So he said at Citigroup, we're going to keep dancing. Right. And that was kind of a. It was very highly suggestive of the culture and the approach that Citigroup City was taking. Well, <laughs> lack no, thereof. no. I mean, I mean, it was a very specific. It was a very specific approach to saying that as long as everything is good, we're gonna we're gonna go full bore mm-hmm. into it. We're gonna do everything to take most advantage of the good economy. Problem was is that worked out terribly for Citigroup. On the other hand, I, I had another quote from uh, Wells Fargo, uh, and, and the quote was basically saying. We didn't do the low no-doc loans. We didn't do a whole lot of uh, tricky arm-type financings because we don't have to. We have a diversified business model. We're comfortable with what, what we do. We're willing to cede market share to other people doing stupid things. It's not exactly what the quote mm-hmm. said, but it's basically what it said. So you've got two very different cultures there. You look at the, the results, the outcomes for Wells Fargo and Citigroup since then, um, and, and you obviously see how that played out. But if you looked back at the time, Citigroup's performance looked really good, right. So if you were focused on what was happening at Citigroup versus what was happening at Wells Fargo at the time, you could have just as easily concluded, well, I, I like what Citigroup's doing. Their numbers look great. So I'm not going to say that numbers aren't important, and that would be it, it's difficult for me to, to get away from that at all, mm-hmm. because I came up as a very numbers-focused investor, But um, over the long term, the numbers will be a result. Uh, the long-term numbers will be a result of good leadership, good management, and good strategy.
1: All right. Again, the, the title of that article was One Bank You've Never Heard Of and How It Put Your Favorite Banks to Shame. It's on
0: fool.com. Mailbag. Mailbag. Let's move on to the mailbag. We've got an email address, wtmi at fool.com. We love to hear from readers and viewers. We've got a question today from Justin. Justin writes, My question is about diversification. I recently wrote over an IRA and I had to sell all of my holdings. I now have to work back to owning a diversified portfolio. Your podcast is focused on the financial sector and that is an industry that I think I know the best. I know that I should be diversified, but I was wondering if I could be diversified if I spread my investments across different parts of the financial sector, i.e. some to banks, MREITs, insurance companies, investment banks, etc. Would I be safe if I was concentrated in the financial industry, but across different sub-industries. David, what do you think?
1: He says that he's most comfortable with the financial sector. So I, I would say if that you're most comfortable with it, I think that's fine to have a large portion of your portfolio where you are most competent. Um, and I think he, as long as you kind of are diversified enough within the financial sector, I think you can be diversified. If we, if we think about the big banks, a Bank of America, an AIG, and we talked about realty income earlier in the show, Those are all financial companies, but are they all affected by the same aspects of the economy? Maybe some. Maybe there's some overlap there. But I really don't think they should move lock and step wherever they go. I don't think that there's going to be the same drivers for a realty income as is for the AIG over there. So I think you can be. Maybe you wouldn't want to be 100% in financials, but I don't see a, a reason why you can't be pretty heavily invested in kind of one big sector there. What do you think?
0: It's an interesting question, and we've actually been getting a lot. Of, it seems like we've been getting a lot of questions recently on diversification, how to approach that. Uh, my personal approach, and, and, and again, I, this is getting away from the question a little bit because he was talking about a specific IRA. So for my retirement assets as a whole, uh, what what I do is I have... Uh, a fair amount of diversification, including a, a lot of global diversification through index funds. Mm-hmm. So I get part of my part of my portfolio is there. Uh, that gives me a, a good amount of diversification. And then within my individual stock portfolio, I'm just looking for the best ideas that I have, and that tends to be a lot more concentrated, so it's kind of a, a combination there. In terms of g- concentrating within a particular sub-industry or, or industry, I shouldn't say sub-industry, in, with an industry using the sub-industries. Um, I tend to agree with you that across the financial sector, and, and again, I, th- I think if we, if we think of uh, a visa on one end that's almost more like a technology mm-hmm. company, some people may even consider it more of a technology company, the dynamics of that are going to be very different than at Bank of America, say. Um, and th- the reaction to certain things... Uh, within the banking sector aren't necessarily going to affect Visa in the same way.
1: And I think there's a little bit of maybe recency bias when we think about the financial crisis because all of these financial companies just got lumped into one terrible entity and they all crashed together, whether that was right or not. But then Um, again, the
0: entire market did as well. Right.
1: So I I think we're looking at 2008 and saying, oh my gosh, financial companies, when one crashes, they all crash. Maybe that happened in 2008, but I don't think that's necessarily a blueprint from what will happen every single time going forward.
0: I think when I think about it in terms of the idea of concentrating a portfolio in general, uh, there's three things that I kind of wrote down here that that are key for, I think, an investor to think about when they're uh, contemplating going that direction. One is uh, that particular investor's skill. So uh, Bruce Berkowitz, very highly concentrated investor. Warren Buffett, very highly concentrated investor in the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. Obviously, very skilled investors. You don't have to be Warren Buffett want to think about concentrating your portfolio, but on the the scale of skill, where do you put yourself? A more Mm -hmm. skilled investor, I think, can tend towards a more, in my opinion, can tend towards a more concentrated portfolio. Less so would want to have a more highly diversified portfolio. Um, the behavioral and psychological aspects. A very concentrated portfolio is going to leave you open to big swings in the value of your, your account. If that's going to affect your psychology, if you're not going to be able to sleep at night, if it's going to force you to do uh, bad things with your money, then having a more concentrated portfolio is going to be a bad idea. And finally, there are a lot of things that you simply can't or don't know uh, about a give, uh, an individual sector, about an individual company in particular, And that's where you, particularly for individual companies, uh, that's why it gets a little bit dicey to have too much of your portfolio in one company because there are things that you just can't know and sometimes they're going to surprise you. So when we're thinking in terms of probabilities, if we say there's a 5% outlier that something horrible, terrible happens that comes completely out of the blue, that's a real 5% that if you have a huge portion of your portfolio in that one company, Mm -hmm. that really smarts. All right. Sounds good. All right, going on to the game for today that you're not excited about. You're not excited about this at all, but we're, you forced we're, it on we're me. doing it anyway. This is, this is a little bull bear action, and we're going bull bear Dow 20,000 by the end of 2015. And while you sit over there and smirk and, and, and think about how much you hate that we have to do this game, I'll go ahead and go first. I'm bullish I'm bullish. I think that we get to Dow 20,000 by the end of 2015. It sounds like a big number. People uh, kind of hang on to these big round numbers like 20,000. I think we we were just celebrating or there's a big thing over Dow Mm -hmm. 16,000. Imagine what happens when we get to 20,000. But as big as that sounds, Dow 20,000 by the end of 2015 is just about 12% returns per year over the next two years. Mm That, I'm not. I'm not going to say that that's nothing. Those are. Those would actually be really attractive returns over the next two years if the Dow were to hit that. Um, however. The economy continues to pick up steam. It's been slow but steady so far. Uh, but if we look at some uh, s- some research out there, particularly Reinhardt and Rogoff over at Harvard, uh, they've said that it typically takes about seven years to recover from a housing and financial crash. So we're kind of hitting that mark now. So we could st- start to see an acceleration. Of the economy, and I know what I know what you're thinking. Pulling out some Harvard research, Morgan Housel (laughs) was on this show talking about how GDP growth not necessarily correlated with with stock returns per se, but an expanding economy is not a bad thing for the stock market. Finally, I'll point out that people are looking at valuations. A lot of people are saying valuations look high. The stock market looks like it's at a peak. Oh, I'm very worried. Stock valuations aren't low but they're not particularly high either when we think about the valuation of the overall market. It doesn't stay at this steady like average area right here. It tends to go well above the average, well below the average, and then that's where the average comes from in between there. We're just a little bit above the average right now.
1: Okay. We're going to get to Dow 20,000, but I don't know if it's going to be by the end of 2015. I have no idea at all. I think in my lifetime I'll see Dow 20,000, but... You said, well, I would hope so. You said, you said that would be 12, 12% annualized returns over the ne- next two years, which you talked about kind of the average returns uh, there. Over the last 10 years, the annualized return of the Dow has been less than 5%. It hasn't been a great year for the stock market the last 10 years. I know we look the past year and say, oh, my gosh, the stock market never goes down. It's so good. I don't think anybody's saying that. You, you're the I'm first the only one saying say that. that. You're the only, uh, well, it's been less than 5%, and we look over the past 30 years, it's been 8.5%. So to get to 12%, I'm going to be really conservative and just say, I'm going to go with the average. And the average is around 8%. You're saying 12%. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think my best guess is kind of what it's been for the last 30 years. So I'm saying, we don't get there.
0: That's your entire analysis? That's my
1: entire analysis. I don't have any Harvard research. I,
0: I win. Okay, okay moving on. <laughs> now that we decide that I'm the winner, moving on to the Twitter sphere. Uh, David, I'll have you kick off the tweet. But first... We have a Twitter address. It's at TMF Financials. Go ahead and tweet us. There you go.
1: First tweet is from Nick Timrose of the Wall Street Journal. He says, Johnson Crapo, raising Fannie and Freddie fees to pay for other government spending unfair to homeowners, taxpayers, (laughs) makes GSC reform harder. So when he talks about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac fees, these are the guarantee fees. And these entities take a little bit of a a vig on the stuff that they they guarantee, if we want to call it that. As they should. And the senators... Wrote to the Budget Committee saying, "Hey, don't raise these just to lower the deficit in other places." And I think I'd probably agree with that. Um, it do, definitely does make it harder. We we've seen that this mingling of kind of the Treasury taking all the profits. What does that mean for shareholders? It makes it harder. The more the government relies on the on that revenue from Fannie and Freddie, it makes it harder to take that away. So if that does happen, I I don't think that's a, a good thing for shareholders. It just keeps the situ- makes the situation worse in life. It's opinion.
0: not a good thing for... Uh, it's not necessarily a good thing. No, it's actually definitely a bad thing for shareholders. But I'll take the counterpoint to that. If you go ahead and start cranking up those fees to help finance the government further, that opens the door even more for private players in the industry to step in and take more market share away from Fannie and Freddie. And I think maybe it could be good for GSE reform over the long term. So if you continue to have Fannie and Freddie raising prices, then, uh, then you can pre- uh, make a more competitive environment. Still, bad for shareholders. All right. Second tweet. Second tweet. We've got Rubicon59. That's at Rubicon59. Odd that AIG and HIG go down each time there's a Fed taper rumor. Aren't higher interest rates good for insurance companies' profitability? Aren't they? And and HIG, that's Hartford, we should say. That I, we should say that. we should say that I did. I Harvard. didn't, but we should. So did. why do they go down? Why do those stock prices go down when there's a? Well, because or- the stock market doesn't know anything about business. The <laughs> stock market. Stock market just does whatever it wants. The stock market reacts on on psychology. It reacts on on surface concerns. Now, to be fair, part of the problem is that AIG and Hartford and lots of other insurance companies have big portfolios of fixed income investments. And to the extent that, insur- uh, that uh, interest rates start to go up, it's that simple Simple math of the bond market, rates go up, prices of current uh, securities go down. So that hurts. But over the longer term, yes, higher interest rates are better for insurance is this, companies. Is
1: this kind of the definition stupid. of short-term thinking? Because like you said, the prices of the securities will fall in the short term, but They'll be able to reinvest at higher rates and earn more actual cash for the company, pay more dividends. So, Stock market's stupid. Stock market's stupid. That's fine. So, so, higher, <laughs> so take away higher rates, good for AIG and Hartford, not bad.
0: Uh, I think on balance, good. Okay. Final tweet? Final tweet. Final
1: tweet have. is from Michael Mobison. I think oh. I'm saying that right. This is great. He says, Auburn gets SI cover. Will Jinx apply? And that was, that was actually the headline to the article he links out. And he says, quote, Jinx when part of recent results equal luck and reversion to the mean kicks in. So we've seen Auburn have an incredible time here. Two miracle endings to the game, and they're on the cover of Sports Illustrated this week. Reversion to the mean. Do you think Auburn makes it to the national championship? Yep. You think they do? Yeah. The luck continues. Luck? Well, they've had a little bit of a luck. I mean, come on.
0: You're, wait, your boy's from Auburn, isn't he? Cam Newton? He is. That's that's like your favorite player. Right well,
1: now. well, he's he's speaking of luck. He's okay. He's having a good time as well. But, <laughs> Carolina Panthers. But but Mobison has a great book. Uh,
0: see, you're the, dodging. You're dodging. The
1: success me. equation talks about the importance of skill and, and luck. I think this could be a definition of reversion to the mean here.
0: Okay. We'll, see. well, that's that's all we have for the week. That's yes. all we have for the entire week. It's Friday. We're done couple final announcements here. You can get a special free report from us. We have this report. It's about Warren Buffett's greatest wisdom. Uh, just email warren at fool.com. That's Warren Buffett's first name, warren at fool.com. You can get that report. You can also email us, wtmi at fool.com, or you can tweet us at TMF Financials. Uh, it's been a great week. Good week. It's been a great week. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you next week.
1: People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.